But we're going to be back in Luke, and we're going to be back in Luke for a while until Christmas time. And so, and I want to, as we kind of like get settled into the book of Luke again, I want to remind you why Luke wrote Luke. Why did Luke take the time to compile this gospel? Well, at the beginning of Luke, he says he wrote to this man named Theophilus, who was kind of a wealthy dude, maybe even the guy who funded the writing of this letter. We're not sure. But he said he did this for two reasons, that he wrote Luke to give an orderly account. He wanted to to package Luke in such a way that kind of made sense. It gave an orderly account of all that Jesus did and and taught. And then he wrote Luke to give certainty about the things that Theophilus had been taught. So he wrote Luke to make to give an orderly presentation of what Jesus did and to give certainty to Theophilus about everything he heard. And this is so relevant for us too as we live in a time with with conflicting narratives and stories that that culture of the broader world is telling us where where it's really easy to doubt what Jesus did that we can kind of step in and remember that we have encountered so far in Luke a Savior who comes not for those who think they have it together, but he comes for the least, the low, and the lost. He comes to seek and to save the lost. He comes for the broken that they might be made whole. And as we prepare to jump into our text this morning... I want to ask you, what motivates you? What motivates you? If you're a parent, you might be, be motivated to, to be like your parents or to do the exact opposite of what your parents did. Maybe you're, you're motivated to just raise good human beings in the world. If you're an employee, you might be motivated by that paycheck that kind of keeps you showing up to work each day or by, or by the purpose that your job gives you. You love its mission, whatever it is. If you're a student, you might be, you might be motivated by the good grade or motivated by the fear of getting a bad grade and what that would mean for your next report card and the conversations at home. If you're a spouse, you might just be motivated by the love that you have for the other and by their love for you and the desire to have peace in your marriage or in your home. If you're an athlete, you might be motivated by the thrill of victory or to avoid the agony of defeat. You might want to win that championship or title. But what about living like Jesus? What about the mission of Jesus? What motivates us for that? Where do we get the desire? Where do we get the gumption, the urge, the, the, the drive to live on mission for Jesus? Well, we're going to see this morning that we are motivated for mission when we are fixated on our heavenly position. We are motivated for our mission when we are fixated on our heavenly position. And so would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 24 together this morning. And rather than read the whole thing at once, we're just going to kind of break it up as we go here. And our first point is going to be ascending, ascending, not ascending, but ascending. So 
Would you look at verses 1 through 9? Hear what God's word says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. This is the word of the Lord. So we see ascending right from this passage. We see Jesus sends out the 72 out on his mission ahead of him. And he sends them out with these words. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. We were just in the Pacific Northwest visiting friends who live um, right next to Olympic National Park. It's a beautiful setting with a big mountain in the background, and they have this huge vegetable garden where they're growing all sorts of things. And they had um, a thing with spaghetti squash. They put in a bunch of seeds. And what they had was, they had so much spaghetti squash, more spaghetti squash than they knew what to do with. And I mean, I like spaghetti squash, but not enough to eat it every day. And they, they just... They just kept getting more spaghetti squash. They're like, how much do we plant? I don't know. It keeps growing. They, they had to keep donating spaghetti squash to the food bank. They were giving it away to friends. They were giving it to neighbors. So much spaghetti squash. And what I wonder is if the harvest Jesus has is a lot like spaghetti squash than our friends plant. There's just more of it than we know what to do with. Or maybe another way of putting it is the Lord has more people ready to receive him than workers ready to go. It's like this sign. I think there's one in uh, the common man, the world is short-staffed. Please be kind to those who showed up, right? There is... There is just more work to be done than there are hands to do it. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, what he's trying to open our eyes to is that he has a harvest. He has people ready to receive him. He has people ready to save. And it's hard. There's more work to do than people to do it. Jesus has a harvest. And it's so hard to remember this whenever it seems like Jesus doesn't have a harvest sometimes. Like we share the gospel with people and we wonder where it goes and we we wonder what Jesus is up to in the world. We're called to do this thing where we kind of share the gospel in our lives with people where we tell people about Jesus and we wonder, are are people listening? Does God really want to save people? But what he says here is that his harvest is actually plentiful, that that he has a really big harvest. And it's a reminder that it's God's harvest, 
not ours. That our job is just to, to spread the good news. And it's God's job to save. So we remember that Jesus really does have a harvest. It's his harvest, and he's called us out into it. And the other thing to remember is that this puts us in a place of prayerful dependence. One of our value statements as a church is that God does the work. It's about prayerful dependence. That that we kind of are dependent on Jesus for everything he does. He builds his church and he calls his disciples and says, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers out into the harvest. God's got a mission and he has people he's trying to reach and so he's called us, you and me, to pray for more workers, to pray for more people that that others might hear the good news of the gospel and so we embrace a humble posture and open hands and ask God, God, would you send more to us? Would you send more? Because we believe that you have more people you want to save in Concord and in Hopkinton and in Bow. You have, you have more people that you want to save. Would you send more workers? Because there is more work. Because we believe that God has people he is drawing to himself through his church. So we pray for more workers here. We pray for more workers in Henniker because God has got a harvest and we embrace prayerful dependence upon him. And Jesus then tells his disciples the reality that he's sending them into, the 72. It says he is, in verse three, now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Really exciting up to this point, right? I got a harvest. Pray the Lord. We'll just send more because there's a big harvest. More than, more than there are workers right now. Pray the Lord that he would just keep sending more. Like, yes, Lord. I love that. And then he says, now I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And you're like, why, Lord? Why, why this? But Jesus sets them into the world, sends them into the world and reminds them the reality of the world, that they're going out into a hostile world, that they will meet resistance. So why should we think when we meet resistance that there should be anything different? Things won't always be easy. It will be hard. There will be suffering. But Jesus calls us to embrace a humble position on mission with him. He, he encourages us to go out anyways, to, to go into the world that is hostile, to, to be lambs among wolves. And he sends us to go out as a peaceful presence in the world. Whenever he sends the disciples out, he says to go into that town and declare peace to them, to speak peace over households. It notes that some people will, will hear this piece and they'll accept it. And other people, they're going to reject it. We're supposed to live as bringers of peace in a hostile world. And this is counterintuitive to us. 
Because we live in a world that's always grasping for power, that's always trying to, to put ourselves in positions of influence to try to move our message forward. But that's not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is that the kingdom of God comes in power in a subversive way. In what looks like weakness is actually power. And it makes sense because we follow a savior who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And what the crowd and the soldiers thought was a defeat was actually a victory over Satan, sin, and death. So we should, we should know that as we go out into the world and as we meet rejection, that the gospel's still going to go forward, that God is still going to get his harvest, that that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. So we don't grasp at power, but we, we enter the world as people of peace. Because God's power is released through suffering. Calls us to be people of peace and to have a kingdom focus. He says in verse 9 that they're going to be about the kingdom. He says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. We're people with the message, peaceful people with the message that God's kingdom has broken in in Jesus and it is here and it is available to you. This is how we live. So we have ascending and we have our next point, a rejection, a rejection. Let's read verses 10 through 16. Jesus says, when you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgments than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. See, there's results to this proclamation of the kingdom that, that there could likely be rejection. That we've talked about this before in recent weeks that we'll have to shake off the dust from our sandals. As that stands as a witness, as an illustration of that they didn't want anything to do with the message of the kingdom or the gospel. And then, Things get heavier. And Jesus kind of keeps, it kind of grows dark as he starts pronouncing judgment. He pronounces judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he starts pronouncing judgment on the people there. He starts saying that Sodom will be better off than some of these places. And if you don't know the story, Sodom is a place that was judged with fire for its wickedness. He he then pivots. He pronounces judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida. And his judgment seems really, really heavy, telling them that, that they've 
flat out rejected. And then if these other towns heard, they would have repented. And then further, he goes on and pronounces judgment on Capernaum. And this is all a warning that to reject the message of the kingdom is to reject the kingdom's king. Jesus pronounces judgment. And what do we do with judgment? Like when you read this, does part of you like kind of get a little squeamish? Like Jesus is basically telling Capernaum, you think you're going to heaven, but you're not. What do we do with all of that? Well, as I said, we often have a hard time with judgment. Judgment seems heavy or harsh. But deep down within us, all of us long for some sort of judgment. Because all judgment is, is setting wrong things right again. And let's understand what Jesus is saying. That to reject the message of the kingdom is to reject the king itself. And what does this king come to do? This king, we've learned, came to seek and save the lost. This king, we've learned, comes up to bind up the brokenhearted. He comes to proclaim liberty to, to captives, to the, the redemption of the lost, sight to the blind. That this king comes as a liberating king. And so, so when Towns and people and places reject the king. They're rejecting all of that goodness in choosing to live in bondage and blindness. Instead of hearts being bound up and put back together, hearts remain broken. That that's what it means to reject Jesus. And Jesus is saying that, that to reject him is to reject his message And that that is judgment. Jesus gives people exactly the thing that they want. If they want to remain far from him, if they want to remain in bondage to sin, Jesus lets them have it. And that puts them in opposition to him in his good news. Jesus lays before people healing and forgiveness and restoration And people choose to walk away and walk in the way of chaos instead of with the prince of peace. So any rejection of this good news is saying that it can be done without Jesus. And it can't. It's not possible. People choose life without him sometimes. And that is hard. But I want to also say something that is behind the text a little bit here. That Jesus calls his people to be people of peace. He calls his people to to be people who live close enough to their neighbors to have the dirt of their streets on them, on their feet. And he calls them to be people who, who speak. He says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. He calls us to be people that, that point to him with our actions and the way we go about our lives and with our words. So when people see us, they need to see Jesus. When people see us, they need to see Jesus. So our words and how we use them matter. We are to be people who bring the gospel and the good news in ways that is sensitive 
to others so that people can hear Jesus and not be distracted by other things. We don't come at people with arrogance or pride, but we come humbly seeking to encourage them, seeking to share the gospel to them, to tell them that Jesus is the one that can heal. We want people to see Jesus with our words so that they hear us, they hear Jesus inviting them to him. And when he came, he called out sin, but he also bound up wounds. So if we're going to live like Jesus, we're responsible for, to communicate the message of Jesus in the way of Jesus. The words we say matter. Not just what we say, but how we say it. It's what we teach our kids, right? But still, make no mistake about it, we'll re- we will be rejected sometimes. And Jesus says to those 72 that to reject them is to reject him. And to reject him is to reject the one who sent him. Rejection is part of the mission, but God has still got a harvest. Jesus invites us to be people who empty ourselves for the benefit of the world. To be people of peace, to share. Our power comes through suffering, through through the cross. It doesn't come through elections. It doesn't come through influence. It comes by a Roman cross and an empty tomb. But where do we get this motivation? Like where are we going to gather within ourselves the energy to live at peace in a world that's hospitable, to live like lambs among wolves? Well, that brings us to our final point, our rejoicing. Let's read verses 17 to 24. Jesus says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are your eyes that see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. The 72 return. And you can see that they're, they're kind of stoked. They're like coming back. Did you like, we threw out demons. We, they're just super excited. And they, they get back to Jesus. They're like, you can't wait to tell Jesus, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And Jesus is like, I know. I saw Satan. He fell from heaven like lightning. Jesus is all excited too. Rejection is mentioned before and it's part of it. But 
You see, friends, there's also this good news that, that the gospel goes forward. It still goes forward no matter what. And Jesus is saying that when his disciples went out, when these 72 went out, they were doing spiritual battle against dark forces too, that he would later come and topple Satan fully himself. And what's Jesus saying with all this? Then he goes on and talks about, you know, I tell you that, that, you know, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will, all, will harm you at all. What does that even mean? Does that mean that like next week we're going to have some rattlesnakes up here and I'm going to invite some of you to come up and grab them? Of course it does. I'm just kidding. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. In the history of the church, um, Paul was actually bitten by a viper that was poisonous and people were amazed that it didn't kill him. What Jesus is saying with this is not that we should ever have snakes and we won't ever have snakes to be abundantly clear unless something is really wrong. Um, but it has nothing to do with, with snakes. It has everything to do that the gospel will go forward and nothing will stop it. It will be successful. You can take this promise that the harvest is plentiful to the bank. God will deliver, and we see in the history of the church, that nothing was able to stop it. No viper was able to stop Paul. No shipwrecks, not persecution, not death itself could contain the message and spread of the gospel in such a way that we are standing here thousands of miles removed from where all of these events take place, and we believe it. Because it's true, and the gospel goes forward. It will go forward into every space and nook and cranny until every people, tribe, and tongue hear it. This is the promise of the gospel. Nothing will stop it. So people are excited. Disciples are excited. And Jesus says this in verse 20. He says, however, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And where do we find all that motivation to keep preaching the gospel? Where do we find the drive to do these things? To live in a world that will persecute us sometimes? To, to live in a, emptying ourselves for the benefit of others? To live as people of peace? Where do we find that drive? Well, we do not find it in our power or in our status. We don't find, find it by just drumming it up within ourselves. We find it by fixating on our heavenly position, that, that we are actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that we are the adopted sons and daughters of God, that our names are written in the book of life and nothing can take it out. That Jesus would say that my sheep hear my voice, I give to them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will take them out of my hand. That is where we get the drive to live like Jesus in these places. It's where we get the boldness to step out in love and serve our neighbor. We handed out those who's your one cards a while ago. It's where we, where are we gonna get the drive to share the gospel with them? Well, it's to remember that God's got a harvest and that we are actually completely secure in him, that we belong to him. We are not lost anymore. We have found Jesus and he has found us.
And all the power and the motivation comes from being fixated on our heavenly position with Jesus. Finally, Jesus turns. And we see that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he began to praise God for revealing this to his disciples. And I love this. Because you can just sense Jesus' happiness and pleasure in his people. He's rejoicing that God has given this privilege to his people. And friends, Jesus is rejoicing over us this morning. He has pleasure in giving us this mission. He has pleasure in you. He is delighted to share this mission with you. He's not like, oh, I'm going to have to give it to Don, and Don's just going to drag his feet about sharing the gospel. No, he delights in that. And he loves to have you included on what he is doing in the world. You join a Savior who delights in you and who delights in God's invitation of you. And this mission, this showing forth of Jesus, so that when people see us, they see Jesus. And we remember that it's up to him, that he reveals himself to whom he wants. The passage closes by Jesus just gets done rejoicing to his father, and then he turns to his disciples. And I want you to just sense the joy when he said, blessed are the eyes that see the things You see, friends. And then he says, for prophets and kings, they long to see what you see. Friends, we are in a privileged position, you and me. They were in a privileged position then. We are in a privileged position now. We we have given the insight into what God is doing in the world, that he is saving people. That what God is doing is he's taken all of the garbage that sin introduced in the world and making everything sad come untrue in Jesus. And he's invited us to be heralds of this good news of the kingdom. That Jesus has come, the one who can bind up our wounds, the one that can heal us. He is here. And he has given us on this mission. We get to join in on it. So friends, Maybe you just need to be reminded of your heavenly position with Jesus. Fixate your mind on it, of what all that means, that you are completely secure in his love, that nothing can take it from you. Let that be a motivation for the privilege of joining him on his mission, because his harvest is plentiful.